Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Malthouse Games podcast. This is episode 14. We are a podcast about tabletop games, board games, card games, RPGs, and everything like that that you play on your table. With me today is my lovely wife, Haley. Hi there. I don't sound like a sexy frog today. Thank goodness not. And then I am your all-the-time host, Delton. I guess, Haley, you're really an all-the-time host as well. You bet you sweet ass I am. Yeah, you're here every time. I always forget about that. I feel like you're the co-host, but you sometimes transfer in and out. I don't know why. What do you mean you forget about it? I've literally been here for every episode. I have no idea why. That's okay. But welcome to the podcast. We'll keep that fight off the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Today, we are not drinking a beer, which is kind of surprising, mainly because we didn't have any we wanted to break out on the episode. And we ate a lot of tacos for dinner. We did. Our potato tacos were a bit too filling. So instead, we have basically rum and Coke. The rum is Kraken, which we like Kraken. We can buy a big bottle for not too expensive and still get a decent quality product. The Coke is not Coke. It is Zevia, which is a like, you know, no calorie, no sugar. It's got stevia, whatever. The Aldi right down the street had it. So Haley picked some up. It's Coke, but gentrified. Basically, yes, it is a weird version of Coke. So it works. That's in there. And then we have discovered the secret to the best rum and Coke possibly ever. Just a splash of pineapple juice. Something about it. It's stinking amazing. You have to try it if you are a rum and Coke fan. You're welcome. Not even a ton either. Just a little bit. Just a little splash. I mean, we've been using that same can for like three days. Probably. It's really bad we've been drinking rums and Cokes for three days. I was about to say, you just told everyone we've been drinking rums and Cokes. Rums and Cokes, rum and Cokes, rum and Cokes. For days in a row. It's okay, we're drinking together, so that makes it fine, right? I think so. It's considered social drinking? Uh, I mean, three's a party and there's only two, so I don't know. Three's a crowd. Three's a crowd. Two's a party. I don't think it works that way. Drink to our party! We will try and drink to the party. Oh, God, don't spill it. Delton made ours very stout this evening. Oh, my God. Well, Haley decided to use smaller glasses than normal, and I'm used to using bigger glasses and filling up more with Coke, but she decided for smaller ones, so I went with it. And then when I made the second round, I decided to stick with the same size glasses, and so it's a problem. See, I just insinuated we drank three nights in a row. You just insinuated we drank multiple tonight. I didn't insinuate this is our second one tonight. (laughs) We we had one with dinner and one with the podcast because we can't not drink on the podcast. You did once, but you were sickly. Or no, you had drank that weekend. I was hungover. Yeah, so we had to, that was all right to leave alone. Today's a good day. It is a Wednesday. We're a little behind on our normal recording schedule, but all the podcasts are coming out on time, no problem. It's just a Wednesday. We're tired. It's a little warm in the computer room. The AC is not on. It's getting hot in Oklahoma already. It's just one of those days we just want to go to bed at 8 o'clock, and I think that's going to be on the agenda tonight. Wild and crazy Wednesday at the Twyman Brack House. The Twyman Brack House? The Brack House? You're a Brack house. I hate you so much. (laughs) Okay, well, whatever. Some cool news, though. We will be attending Gen Con. I know we've said this before that we're going to go this year. We do have our badges, which I think I announced that in January, probably. Yeah, boy. But Haley, and I know I've talked about this, is going to do a seminar on psychology of gaming 
especially focused on rage quitting and getting angry during games, as well as some other topics. The best part is, that was a room for 100 people, and it sold out within the first 24 hours, which is crazy. It's free tickets, but the fact that 100 people were like, oh, this sounds cool, just feels really awesome. And Haley's going to do the presentation. I will record audio and video for those of you who aren't going to Gen Con, and those of you especially who did not get tickets. But we're super stoked. That means I actually have to make the presentation now. You've got to do the research and the presentation. See, I went to a couple of these last year, so it was two like psychology-related board game seminars. Psychology is in air quotes there. Yeah, but I went to two of them. One had a room with like 15 people. The other one had a room with maybe 20 or so. So I was like, oh, this will be fun. It'll be a neat little thing to do on the trip. Spread the word of psychology of our Lord and Savior, Aaron Beck. CBT. Woo. But I didn't expect all 100 seats to sell out. So this is going to be awesome. I think the difference is the two we went to at Gen Con, and not to discredit one of those two groups, the thing we went to at Gen Con, the first one was two guys essentially talking about their experiences overcoming alcoholism and their therapy experiences. So that was actually really enjoyable. They did a great job talking about it. And I feel like if somebody in the audience was struggling, that that really could have helped them. Yeah, and they related a lot of their experiences to their experiences in board games. So it gave me a lot of ideas to kind of make metaphors whenever I'm explaining therapeutic interventions or whatnot to people. Exactly. And so theirs was very good. The other one, on the other hand, was basically a lady. From what I understood, we left very early. Her child, I believe, has autism. And she was just talking about her experience with that. And she was talking to people and giving them advice on how to handle or be able to work in a group with someone that either has autism or is on the spectrum basically at any point. The issue with this was it was framed as if it was going to be a psychologist or somebody that was qualified talking about actual psychological facts of it and talking about different things and something more interesting. And it's not that this may not have been interesting for people and helpful. It just was presented differently than we wanted it to be. And it just felt unprofessional, I think, is my problem with it. It was just one lady talking about experiences, and that was the entire thing. But the thing is, she talked for five minutes and then asked for questions, and so it wasn't what we were looking for. And that left a bad taste in our mouth, which is why we left very early. Well, and not that a mother of an autistic child doesn't have life experiences that can be useful. Of course not. But you can't learn from that. It was just, like Delton said, it wasn't the... I guess the academic educational seminar we were looking for is more of a discussion seminar. And so what I wanted to do is take a concept, psychology, and one of my favorite things to do is teach. I love, love, love teaching. I've, I've taught at trainings. I've held my own trainings. I have lectured at research symposiums. It's one of my favorite things to do. I just like to talk at people. And I'm really good at talking at people. I'm doing it right now. Very good. But I wanted to disseminate the information that I find enjoyable in a way that I think others would find enjoyable and learn something. And so, you know, like Delton said, we, we really enjoyed that first seminar last year. And the second one, yeah, I did provide some useful information, but it wasn't what we wanted. So basically, I just designed, or I am designing, I kind of have to actually make the slides now that people sh- signed up. Really didn't <laughs> think that was going to happen, honestly. But I want to present something that I would want to attend. And it seemed to have caught a lot of people's attention. I mean, plus I have a master's in psychology. And so I think I have a little bit of clout. I think I know what I'm talking about, at least sometimes. 
Well, the difference between those two and yours is you have qualifications. And given this is, yes, qualifications from an academic standpoint, but if I'm going to go watch someone talk about psychology, I want academics involved. I want people that know what they're talking about from a researched, scientifically based, like, I've been to school for this shit, I know what I'm doing, I teach trainings, I actually counsel people, I want that kind of a lecture. That might just be the academic inside of me. It could also be a paid Delton to say that. She has not, I will let you know. All she did was make dinner tonight, so, you know, nothing new. Paid you with food. She paid me with food. But anyway, we're super excited. Get off this weird talking about other people sucking and yours going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. We're super stoked about it. I will record audio 100%, and I will most likely record video as well, so we can get that up and you can see the slides and her present it in front of, hopefully, the full 100 people. Hopefully everybody shows up. I'm just amazed, and I want to say thank you all. If anyone who is listening who signed up for it, thank you so much for supporting me. I mean, this was amazing to wake up Monday morning to my show being sold out before even 24 hours had hit. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity. No matter if one person shows up or all hundred, I'm really grateful, and thank you so much, so much for giving me your time. My only regret is we didn't charge money. Well, you can't charge money for the seminar. (laughs) I'm kidding, obviously. That's okay. What we will do, we're going to try, try, so don't hold me to this and I'll announce later if we actually get to, I'm going to try to have some t-shirts with a Malthouse Games logo or something with us during the convention. So at any time at Gen Con, if you spot us and you said, hey, that's Delton and Haley from the Malthouse Games podcast, please come say hi. We want to say hi. We want to talk to you. And if we get t-shirts, that's a big if, just because we either need to sit down and work on a design. We've been talking with Brian about potentially getting something started. That way we can do that. You know, it's a process. We all have lives to live, and so it's kind of hard. I mean, we both work basically 40-hour work weeks, and Brian works a 40-hour work week as a graphic designer. So we have things to do. We're busy. But hopefully we can get some kind of design. At worst, it will be just the logo on the t-shirt in some manner of color. I'll have to figure that part out. But we do want to have some t-shirts on us. And what I'm going to throw out there is if you find us and you come say hi and you say, hey, I'm a fan of the podcast, blah, blah, blah. We're just going to give you a shirt. I won't have many. I might have like maybe one of each size. Maybe we're going to see. This is all tentative right now, but I would like to be able to do that and just give out at least two or three shirts. You're committing to it now, man. I'm going to hold you to it. I want a T-shirt. Well, we'll have shirts. Duh. Make 12 shirts. Mm-hmm. But I would love to see some Althouse Games fans. 100 shirts. No, <laughs> Jesus. 1,200 shirts. The more shirts you get, the cheaper it is per shirt. 5,000 shirts. Will you stop yelling in the microphone? Nope. Oh my gosh. I want to try to have that. So if you see us at Gen Con, come say hi. Come talk to us. We'll be glad to talk to you, and it'll be awesome just to have somebody say they're a fan. If you want to go out and have a beer with us, let's do it. As long as we're not doing anything, I'm down to go grab a beer and something to eat. We are vegan, keep that in mind, but as long as Island Noodle is right outside Gen Con again by the beer garden, we're good. Keep in mind, I do have a presentation at 9 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, so I can't be too hungover. And then we do have the Tuesday night podcast, Saturday at 10. Shout out to Alan. (laughs) Shout out to Alan and Sean on the Tuesday night podcast, my favorite tabletop game podcast that I also help edit. Anyway, we'll be at Gen Con. Yeah. And we're super excited about it. So there's that. I guess really, we need to move on because we're pushing time. What are we moving on to? You'll see. Oh, here's the door. 
It's straight ahead. It's, it's a game. So for today's game, we are talking about a game called Muse by Quick Simple Fun Games. I feel like I said game a whole lot during that, but that's okay. So Quick Simple Fun is a smaller company. They have, uh, I don't know how many games they have right now. They have a handful of games, but I actually won this. And I think I talked about this on an episode or two ago, but I won this through a Twitter drawing. Super exciting. Got it in the mail. Uh, we've been able to play it like two or three times now, and we do really enjoy the game. It is a party style game. It is designed by Jordan Sorensen with art from Andre Garcia, Appleline. I'm going to say her last name or his last name. I don't know on the first name if that's feminine or masculine. Uh, Etina, Etina, Etienne. I honestly have no idea. And Kristen Plezcal. Please correct us on Twitter. We need phonetics. Yeah, it, we need to know how to pronounce these people's names. Either way, the art is gorgeous in this game. So the way this game functions, it's a party game. Uh, it says about 30 minutes, which we found to be accurate, for 2 to 12 players. I do think the game works best at 4 with two teams of 2. I think it's a great like couples date night game kind of thing. I think that's its best uh, position. However, I do think it still works with more. We can play this with Allison on Saturday. Yeah, we can show Allison Saturday. Malthouse Game Superfan. Malthouse Game Superfan Allison. Shout out, shout out, shout out, shout out. Woo. What was that? I was like, woo. That was the lamest <laughs> woo. Allison, I apologize for this. I tried real hard. Anyway, the way Muse works is you're split into teams. Your team has one person act as a Muse, and the other person is basically a guesser. The opposing team draws six cards. These are tarot-sized cards with kind of a surrealistic art style, um, just some weird imagery. There's one that's like a porcupine, and he's got marshmallows in his quills, and he's roasting them on a fire. So some stuff like that. But they have a lot of really cool art. They choose one of these six to be the card that the muse is trying to get their partner to guess. They then pick one of two of these clue cards. I can't think of the actual name of the card. I don't have the rule book with me. It's over there, but I don't want to grab it. Two of these clue cards, you pick one of them. The clue can be something like name a uh, structure, building, or monument. It could be hum a tune. It could be make a pose with any body part or your entire body. Name a non-fictional bug. Name a non-fictional insect and things like that. So what they do is the opposing team is picking the clue that you have to make your teammate guess like the clue you're giving and the card you're trying to make your teammate guess. So then you receive the card that is the target, the clue style you have to give. You observe them, lock it in. Then the opponent team will shuffle your target card in with the other five. You give your clue to your partner. They lay all six cards on the table and your partner has to guess which one your clue went to. So the reason I really, really, really like this game is because your opponents pick the card that you have to give a clue for. And so you'll see only one of the six cards, and you have to give your clue before you lay those cards out. This means that you not only have the most difficult time, because your opponents are always assholes in this moment, but it also means that you can't change your guess upon viewing the other six cards. So you may make a clue. If it was name an animal, a non-fictional animal, you would say a dog. Well, then there could be three of those cards pop up that have dogs on them. And then it's like, well, shit, which one are we going to choose now? And your partner on your team's not going to know. 
And I just love that aspect. I think that adds such a fun element to this style of game. Yeah, it makes it really easy to screw the other person over, especially if you know the other person. Like, we played this one night with Kelton and Jennifer, Delton's brother and sister-in-law, my sister-in-law too. Kelton and I were playing together against Delton and Jen, and then there was another couple playing. But anytime it was Kelton and I against Jennifer and Delton, I mean, we all know each other really well. I mean, Jennifer has known Delton for 10 plus years. I've been with the family for almost six years now. And so we all know each other. So we know each other's strengths and weaknesses. And so you can pick cards based on that and totally screw the other team over. So I highly recommend playing on the opposing team of your spouse because you know them so well, you can watch them squirm. Haley knows exactly how to pick a clue and stuff that is impossible for me to either come up with or pick the correct answer to. So that proves to be a little brutal, but very good. Now you do the same to me. Don't put this on me because you do the exact same thing. What? Pick the clues that are hardest. You know me too well, too. What? (laughs) Uh, it is it is fun it's fun to try to say okay this person is you know very detail oriented let's pick one that has a ton of detail to go after or one that has no detail whatsoever if they have one that's hum a tune and another one that's strike a pose if you know this person's music taste is completely opposite from their teammate you just pick hum a tune and it's gonna make it hilarious which brian and jessica though nailed it when jessica or no sorry brian hummed the Gilligan's Island Gilligan's Island theme and Jessica got it and it was just like how in the world does this happen it was very good like it surprises you too and you have to think creative I think what I like about this game so much is that you have to think quickly and you have to think creatively like how are you going to describe this card by using a facial feature you'd be surprised what you can try I mean it sounds difficult hearing it but once you pair the one card that you have with the one clue you're supposed to give, your brain works quicker than you think. It really does. One thing I forgot in the description of this game that is another reason I love it is if your team picks a clue, gives it to your opponent. You know, they do the whole thing where he the, the opponent gives a clue and then their teammate, let's say, misses it. Your team, who gave them the clue and target card, who picked out the stuff, will win the point if their team does not get it correct. So that's something we missed the first time, and I almost missed it again here in the descriptor. So if Haley is on a team with Brian, and they give me and Allison a clue, I'm just throwing names in here now, and me and Allison miss it, their team would then receive that. Not just throwing in names. Names of the Malt House Games super fans. Oh my god, Allison's gonna be so happy. Of course, she's been on the podcast, so I don't think this beats that, but still. I really like that aspect, that if you pick a hard enough clue and target card combination, your opponents have a hard time, but if they don't get it, you picked a hard enough one, then they have to give that point to you, and it's the first to get to five points that wins. Yeah, the first time we played it with just more than Delton and I, when we played it with uh, Kelton Jen and the other couple, we didn't have that rule, and we felt like the game was kind of drug on a bit. Uh, which I think a lot of that came into play with having three teams. I think that, like Delton said, it works best with four, but really I think it works best with two teams. That way it's the constant back and forth. If you have three or more groups, then one group is not playing while the other two are. Same if you have four groups. Now you can still have, you know, six people playing, maybe a group of three and a group of three. I think it's more back and forth that way. 
But like I said, I think it was the combination of having the third team out and not having the rule where if you don't get it, the opposing team gets the point. I think that made it drag on at first, but I think that's all able to be mitigated. I agree with that. Uh, That is one not concern with the game. That's one negative for the game that I think even still happens with just uh, two teams of two. And John Gets Games mentioned this in his review of it. But it was that at any one time in the game, one of the teams is doing nothing. You're either waiting on your opponent to pick your stuff. Then when they hand it to you and you give your clue, your opponent is then waiting on you to give the clue and for your teammate to pick. So the whole time, there's always somebody waiting. But as long as you're playing decently quickly and keeping that in mind, it's not a problem. I think that's why this game really shines with two people. With two people, it makes it a cooperative game. Basically, Delton and I are working together. He's trying to get me to guess his stuff. I'm trying to get him to guess my stuff, so on and so forth. But there's no lag time. And I really found it enjoyable to two-player. I liked it as four-player, but honestly, I think my favorite is playing it two-player. The two-player is neat. So there's a little card inside that's a two- and three-player variant. And the difference is you work cooperatively. One of you, whoever is going to play the muse, so the clue giver, draws the top card of the deck. That is their target card. They draw two and pick one of the clue cards to use, and then they will figure their clue out, give the clue, draw five more of the artistic cards, like the target card, shuffle them up, lay them out, and hope your teammate gets it. So it works kind of the same way. It's very simple, uh, but it is fun with two people. It's a lot quicker that way, too. You can go back and forth, and it plays very fast. But I'm glad they had that variant because we wouldn't have really been able to play this very easily without it because we mainly play two people or three people. And so it's nice to have something like this included. Because you're my friend. They also sent a promo card. I posted about this. I actually put an unboxing of Muse up on YouTube. So go to YouTube, look up Malthouse Games, and we have a Muse unboxing and I go through some of the cards and talk about it for a minute. But they sent a promo that I almost missed in that unboxing. I had to throw in an extra clip of video, which was funny. It's a really cool card. It's basically a factory producing the game of Muse, which I thought was really neat. So I just want to say again, or maybe the first time for this podcast, thank you to Quick Simple Fun Games for the chance to win that. And it's been really fun. Yeah, y'all should pick it up right now. Yeah, it's really cheap. It's like, I think it's like 15 bucks online, 20 bucks in store. It's not very expensive. And if you do double dates a lot or... At most, I say six people would probably be as high as I'd really want to take this. Two teams of three. That would be, it'd be a perfect game for just sitting back, having a couple drinks and looking at some awesome art while also giving funny clues and stuff. Support your friendly local game store. If you can, please do. Muse is a very, very good game. Uh, We recommend picking it up. It's pretty fun. We really enjoy it, especially if you can have a few drinks and have another couple over and just have a good time. I mean, it's, it's really neat. The best part about the game, though, by far, I think, is just the artwork in general. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So for today's topic, we wanted to talk about artwork in board games. More specifically, how it is or why it is that artwork like they have in Muse, which is large cards, kind of surrealistic at times, fanciful, lots of elements involved, why this kind of artwork makes such good games. Because there are other games like Dixit that has similar style art, and then even Mysterium has the same kind of thing. Now, 
These are different styles altogether, I guess, but it's very similar in that it is an art interpretation sort of thing, and some of it is kind of a surrealistic style. For anyone who doesn't know what surrealism is, look up Salvador Dali. You'll most likely notice The Persistence of Time, probably his most famous piece. I personally like Swans Reflecting Elephants. That's my piece of his. There's also an artist named Vladimir Kush, who's got a beautiful one that's a boat and the sails are butterflies. LOL Kush 420. I hate you. Or there's a piano and it's opened up and it's a butterfly or like the one where it's a tree and it's a book. It's very good. Surrealist art is awesome. I think it's very cool. There's usually multiple elements of something. There's some hidden stuff. The deeper you look at the photo and the more time you take, the more things you catch. And so I always like that sort of artwork in games. But Haley, why do you think it is that this style of, you know, really neat art, strange like juxtapositions in the artwork, sometimes surrealistic elements, why do you think this sort of stuff works so well in games? I think it's because the human brain is programmed to find meaning in things. Just think about it. Cultures across civilizations, across centuries, have found meaning in objects, have found meaning in geographical elements, in astrology. Our brains are programmed to find meaning in things because we want to find a pattern, because we want to be able to predict things. It keeps us out of danger. And so having to interpret pieces of art, find meaning in them, it is what our brain's programmed to do, and so we seek that out. I could see that for sure, and we always do try to interpret things in different ways. I think part of it for me is how subjective art is. Art is subjectively good or bad. It depends on the person. It could be amazing to someone and just absolute garbage to somebody else. And so I love that element too, where somebody can take meaning from something that somebody else may miss. Or somebody may come up with a meaning deeper than anybody else around the table has thought about. And it could sometimes be a moment of thought. And I think that kind of stuff is cool with art like this. If you look at something, you start to notice more and more small elements of it. And the more you notice in these photos, these drawings and paintings, the more you start to feel connected, I guess, to the photo. Not so much connected. You start noticing these things and feel the photo complete itself in a way. At first glance, you just notice this pretty landscape. But then you start picking stuff out and it's like it can tell a story. But that story morphs to who is observing it. And so I really like that about this style of artwork. Like the crab with the cigarette and the fedora with Cthulhu behind him? Yes, exactly. I don't know what the story is there, except it's probably Lovecraftian in general. How Lovecrafty of them. But I think these kind of games work so well, because like you said, we look for patterns in things. We look for these types of things in art. And I think since they are so subjective, that helps a lot. You can look at any photo and add a meaning to it. And that's what makes it fun. And games like Dixit and Mysterium play off of this in the same way. It's how can you take something and connect it based off your interpretation of a clue and connect it to something else that could also be interpreted. Like, it's just a whirlwind of interpretation. And I think that's what makes it so much fun for me. Same here. Stimulating intellectually. And it's pretty. It is very pretty. I also like that, that these are well-drawn, illustrated. Well-illustrated, no matter what medium they use, I suppose. They are all well-illustrated, and it's just neat. I don't know, it makes for something different. It adds more than just a number or a sentence or a logo, a little bit of, like, symbolism. It's neat to just have an entire painted small piece of artwork that is what the game's based around. 
and there's a lot of them. I don't know. It's just, it's very entertaining. It's kind of a weird thing to talk about, I feel like. It's something that a lot of people go to. Anytime you play Mysterium, the first thing people notice are the cards. Ooh, this is really cool. Ooh, that's really pretty. Ooh, this one's really creepy. You know, and they start picking out the small elements in this card, and they notice this and that, and I just love the interaction around those cards of art. I think what I like about it is that just about every time you look at a card, you find something new. So it really keeps the game refreshing. So games that you use the same cards over and over and over again, yeah, it's great. The cards can be beautiful. The text can be awesome, but it kind of becomes monotonous. But with games like Muse, where you're pairing not only a card with multiple different scenarios going on in the same thing, with multiple different interpretations that could be made, you're pairing it with either make a sound to describe this, say a non-fictional insect to describe this, so you're forced to look at different components of the art. So, for example, we played uh, Muse probably three times before Delton noticed that the crescent-shaped island on one of the cards was a lizard. And so pairing the clues with works of art that aren't meant to have a single focus, because a lot of times in artwork, there's meant to have a single focus. This is the girl in the blue bonnet card. This is the apple card. But with Muse, there are so many different scenes going on. There's not really an area of focus. There's multiple. And so the different clues that get paired with those cards makes you look to the little hidden scenes that might be within them that you missed the first couple times you played. And so I really think that keeps the game fresh. Exactly. That's kind of like for the clue that I gave you that luckily you got. I don't know how you got it. But it was, I had to name a non-fictional vegetable, and I said a horseradish, because that is a breed of radish, which is a root vegetable, whatever. One of the cards that Haley chose, I don't know how she got to it, is somebody holding a book, and the book is shining a light on her face. But if you look closely in her hair, there's a horse standing next to, like, a dragon. And so I saw that horse in her hair, and I was like, I don't know about a vegetable for this, but I could do a horseradish and be okay. You know how I got it? How? Because uh, horseradish is a root vegetable, and I was thinking the roots of a hair. And that's why we love these kinds of games. It's just neat that you can take this artwork and everyone interprets it differently, and even with a clue, they have to look at all kinds of stuff. And I just think it's so neat. And I always recommend these games. Muse, Dixit, Mysterium. I wish I had more games that use this, I guess, art interpretation mechanic. That's what I always like to call it. I wish I knew more games that used it. I just think it's very cool and is definitely something that will stick around. And like Haley said, you can see these cards over and over again, but they're always going to be presented differently depending upon the clue you give or in Mysterium, the card you're going after, or in Dixit, depending on the words or sentences or whatever you say. So it's really neat that these can be used for so many different things. And that really mirrors art in the real world because so much art out there can honestly be interpreted in many different ways. And now, join us for a Malt House Games podcast special, Bite Size Question. So for our question today, we wanted to ask, what is your favorite painting if you have one, or who is a favorite artist if you have one? And this can be literally anything across all of time. So mine comes with a bit of explanation. But I really love Judas Slaying Holofernes by Gentileschi. Not Caravaggio. That one sucks. Gentileschi. I don't tell you why. So in undergrad, I took an art history course with a woman named Dr. Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz was everything that I hope to grow up to be whenever I'm like 55 years old. Like short hair, bright red lipstick, always wore bright yellow, very eccentric. 
except she was an artist and I want to be a therapist. Anyway, I want to grow up to be her, but she explained the differences between Gentileschi's, uh, Judas Lang, Holofernes, and Caravaggio's, and why she liked Gentileschi's. So if you look at Gentileschi, um, Gentileschi was raped as a young woman. And in this artwork, so the history behind Judas slaying Holofernes, basically Holofernes was an abusive jerk face, and Judith was a divorcee and basically seduced him. He drank until he passed out. She got her favorite handmaiden to kill him. And in Gentileschi's piece, it is a strong woman holding him down, blood's going everywhere. It's her young handmaiden who looks like her biffle holding him down. And it's how it's depicted is Judith slaying Holofernes, but Gentileschi paints herself as Judith and her rapist as Holofernes. So in the piece, which has become a symbol of feminism, a symbol of women taking back power that has been stolen from them from men, she is actually stabbing her rapist, which was like the only culturally acceptable way to get back at somebody back in like the 1600s, if you're a woman. And so it's become like this power piece versus Caravaggio's, which has this dainty little girl in a white top who is like cutting Holofernes neck like she's slicing a piece of cake. And there's this old woman holding a cloth behind her, like gently watching. No, you're not going to take your grandma whenever you go stab your rapist. You're going to take your best girlfriend. You're going to hold him down. And you're gonna, she's going to help you hide the body because that's what girls do. They support each other. Gentileschi's is definitely the superior piece in terms of all of that. I always love Caravaggio, though. His control of light and shadow is just phenomenal. But that's also, I just like him. But I do agree that that version is much better. Look it up. I can't spell Gentileschi, but look it up. Gentileschi, it's Italian, so spell it in a way you could think is Italian. It's like G-E-N-T-I-L-L-I-S-C-H-E, maybe? Uh-huh. I don't know. Something like that. Anyway, look it up. Um, that's a really good one. I think that's a good choice. It's definitely one of those pieces that has a lot of symbolism and power behind it. Thanks. In terms of my favorite artist or painting, I have a favorite sculptor and sculpt, but I don't know. The painting is a really tough one. I always have the hardest time with this. I do really love Raphael's School of Athens. The reason I love it is because it's he literally took this blank wall and filled it with the greatest thinkers of his own culture, I guess I should say. So it's got Socrates and Pythagoras and Aristotle and Plato, and I think he even has Michelangelo. He draws in it as the poor-looking guy on the steps that's like homeless-looking, which is kind of funny. But it's all the mathematicians and the philosophers and all these people that really set a lot of the groundwork for our modern day just everything. It's a very powerful piece in that. I don't even know who everybody is. There's like 18 or 19 people in that photo, something like that. And there's just a lot of people, and it's very difficult to know them all without just memorizing it to me. But I really love that piece because it's it's all these people that their whole idea was changing the system, changing the game, thinking in a different way than somebody else thought. And that's kind of how I view that photo. And so when Raphael painted that, it's just like, let's take these people who were the best thinkers in this region. I'm not going to exclude other regions because obviously China had a lot of great people. There were really good people from the Middle East and Persia and stuff like that. And there were women. And there were women and there were just, I mean, people of all kinds. But so this is really the Eurocentric 
uh, model of intelligence. But when you come to like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, you can't help but say these were, you know, the fathers of modern philosophy kind of thing, blah, 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 whatever. I love that photo for that, though. In terms of actual like art style, I don't know why I always think of this painting. I don't know that it's my favorite painting. Uh, Albrecht Dürer, his Four Horsemen woodblock print is always going to be one of my favorite pieces because we got to see it in person, which is really cool. He's one of the prints. I don't know how many prints of that are floating around in museums and stuff, but I really love that piece just because the talent it takes for a good woodblock. And he was like the master of woodblock. I think he's high, high German Renaissance. I want to say it's like early 1800s. I could be completely wrong on the dates. Who is the sculptor? Starts with a B. Bernini. Bernini. I kept trying to say like all these pasta names like Barilla and... I mean, you're close. It's Gian... Benitoli. Gian Lorenzo Bernini. Bernini. My like favorite Bernina, is... My, the sewing machine. I guess so. <laughs> my favorite is his Apollo and Daphne. He's got the Rape of Persephone. He's got Apollo and Daphne. Uh, what is it? St. Mary and Ecstasy. I can't think of the real name. He's got the Cathedra Petri, the chair at the back of St. Peter's Basilica, the, the Vatican. He's got the Baldacchino, which is the big tall thing at the pulpit at the Vatican. And then he's got all the statues and all that kind of crap. But to me, uh, Apollo and Daphne is by far the best sculpt he has. It's amazingly done. Every angle you view it at, it is interesting because he was a master. Nobody can argue that he is the best sculptor because he is. So bleh. Three-dimensional. Yes, very three-dimensional, which that's more answers. Do you have any more answers for that? Other pieces you like a lot? I know you like Der Kuss. Gustav Klimt. I really like Gustav Klimt's Der, Der Kuss. It's very pretty. I don't really have a story behind that. I just think it's cool. I like the shapes. That's kind of like me with, the, with Horsemen, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. I just love that that's a woodblock, and it's so well done. Well, anyway, I think that really wraps up this episode. Uh, I did want to take a second just to say the next episode, episode 15, we will be talking about Caper Games' new Kickstarter, Verdium. It goes live May 29th. Uh, that episode is going to be sponsored by Caper. So we'll talk about Verdium as the game for that episode and some random topic that we decide uh, between now and then. So make sure to tune in for that one. We'll release it on June 3rd, but check out their Kickstarter starting May 29th. That's all we've got going on right now. We're just going to try to probably pour out these rum and cokes because Haley can't finish it and I don't want to drink hers, so that one's going to waste. Damn it. I'm sorry. It's not technically rum and coke. Rum and Zevia with a splash of pineapple juice. It's fine. It'll be okay. It'll be fine. We have a huge bottle of rum. It's cool. That's making it sound even worse. It really does. That's all we've got for today's episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you could please check us out on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Malthouse Games. Send us an email if you'd like, contact at malthousegames.com. If you could go onto iTunes and leave us a review, we've got some awesome reviews from some people we know, people we've talked to online, stuff like that. We really appreciate all of those. It really makes us feel good. If you could go on there and give us a rating. And then aside from that, just interact with us a little bit. Send us a tweet here and there. Talk to us. We are more than happy to engage and talk about anything you want to. I talk to people for a living. She really does. If you want to find me personally, I am at Delton Brack. If you want to find Haley, she is at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-O-Y-G-E-K. That is Squirrely Geek. Until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you guys later. Goodbye.